But if something's broken in a company, we should work together to fix it. Uh, and I think, you know, what I would say for anyone, you know, early on in the career is that's how you immediately kind of uh, rise, rise up and, and get identified as, as talent that's willing to go the extra mile. Welcome to another episode of Blood, Sweat and CPMs. I'm your host, Kurt Donnell. In today's show, we have the pleasure of hearing from Travis Klinger, Senior Vice President of Addressability and Ecosystem at LiveRamp. Travis is responsible for leading the company's global digital advertising ecosystem strategy, which includes strategic initiatives, global partnerships, and oversight of the business development and go-to-market strategies for key addressability products and initiatives. Travis is a co-founder and board member of the Advertising ID Consortium, advocating for people-based identifiers to be transacted across the open internet. Prior to joining LiveRamp, Travis was a director at Epic Systems, responsible for implementing systems that manage sensitive healthcare information. Travis holds a BA in political science from Rollins College. You're in for a great show today, so let's dive right in. Awesome. So, Travis, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it, man. Yeah, no, thank you for having us. Excited to, oh, sorry, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So, like we like to go for every episode, I think it's always fascinating to hear the story of how you, how you found yourself into this crazy industry of ours. So, if you could kind of back up here at the beginning and give us all... A little bit of a rundown of where you came from and how you found yourself in ad tech. That'd be fantastic. Absolutely. So this is my first foray into ad tech, although it's been a, a long foray, six years now at LiveRamp. Um, but I actually started my career in healthcare consulting. So uh, working for a company out in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, so a little different than San Francisco. <laughs> um, and you know, we, we worked on electronic medical records. And so I worked on our consulting team there, helping hospitals implement manage those projects and, and convert over from the days of the, the fun paper charts that you see in all the great uh, TV shows, no longer actually used by hospitals, um, over to the electronic records. And then uh, moved over to LiveRamp in 2016, uh, moved to San Francisco. Part of the reason I got a little tired of the Madison weather, um, you know, four winters in Wisconsin can be pretty brutal. As a, a native Floridian, uh, I never learned to drive in the snow. And that was uh, really a an existential need up in Wisconsin. <laughs> so I, I, gave, I gave that up. <laughs> yep. Um, no one wanted to ride with me in the winter, so which is probably best for everyone. Uh, so I gave that up, moved out to, to San Francisco and joined LiveRamp. I think what attracted me to LiveRamp at the time, smaller company, so 140 people-ish at that time. And, you know, their focus was on how do you connect all of the world's data to all of the world's use cases. And in healthcare, we deal with major data sets, too. You can imagine just, you know, if you're in an ICU for even a day, how much data you generate, all the machines, all of the lab tests, all of the doctor's notes, all of the billing data as well. Uh, and, you know, the opportunity to work in a more fast-paced industry. Healthcare moves a little bit more slow. You obviously have patient safety concerns. And so uh, you take things like that incredibly seriously. But in ad tech, I'd say we're a little more open to breaking things uh, and experimenting. And, you know, you've got that Silicon Valley mentality. And so joined LiveRamp, met the team, um, loved the culture. Uh, and I've been here now six years and, and counting. That's amazing. I'm from Ohio originally, so I feel your pain on the weather. Um, I will say I think I had the best cheese curds of my entire life in Madison, Wisconsin. It was a, that is an true. absolute <laughs> treat there. And I think we share the the move into ad tech. I actually was here and then left and came back because of that fast moving nature. And like you said, the willingness to sort of break things, I think, is 
fascinating and interesting. And the fact that it changes every six months, it keeps you on your toes a little bit. And uh, something like healthcare, I could see getting a, a little, little stale at times and, and the fast moving nature is fun. And certainly live ramp has been doing that. You mentioned you started at, you know, 140 people. I think you said you're now up to about 1200 when we we're doing the prep time, pretty crazy changes for the company. And then obviously as privacy and various other elements have come to the forefront, you guys have developed a ton of products, maybe run the audience through some of the things you guys are now offering. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, when I joined LiveRamp, we were known as the data onboarding business, right? So we took your, your CRM data and we connected that to third-party cookies and social media platforms. And we were just at that time really expanding our mobile ID graph. That was that was the core thing in 2016. We were connecting into to mobile IDs. And I, I think our core mission hasn't changed uh, a ton because it was never really data onboarding to start with. I think that's the business that we thrived in at the beginning, but our mission was actually always, how do you take all of the world's data to all of the world's use cases? And what we've done is of course, data onboarding was a key part of that. And that was a great place to start. But now we've expanded so much on that with the same core mission. So now we've looked at all of the channels that we can connect to. So connected TV is an example, addressable TV. Uh, we've looked at how we can enable data to be used more in the platform. Uh, if you go back to 2016, you were looking at, you know, market brought their segments. So you had a, a retailer and they would bring their 2,500 segments. They would have like July 4th barbecue intenders. Well, now we see marketers taking that July 4th barbecue intender segment and they go to the CPG brand and they say, okay, let's merge this with your data and let's show you what the transactions like. Maybe those folks end up uh, buying a lot of a particular CPG's barbecue sauce and how do you drive them to buy a more premium one or maybe a new one that you want to market out and say, hey, this 4th of July, you really should try this sauce on your barbecue. Uh, so we see a lot more of that data collaboration. So our, our primary product today is our LiveRamp Safe Haven. Uh, and Safe Haven is our platform where you can build segments, you can collaborate with your data, uh, and importantly, you can measure. I think um, a big change we've also seen is a shift of marketers in your know, how they use data is, can I measure with it? If I buy an impression, did it actually drive? You know, did I buy more of that barbecue sauce? So was I always going to buy that? You know, and we, we did a control group and maybe the ad didn't drive more. So how do you prove the ROAS uh, and prove your investment? And I think that became a really big deal about two years ago, you know, as we entered COVID, we actually saw a lot of marketers come to us and say, hey, we now need to do, we actually need to buy an upsell into your measurement products. We need to do more with you because we're being getting pressure with the recession that we faced in the first couple quarters of COVID of how do we make sure that every dollar we spent is measurable and addressable. And then I'd say the other big change that we've had that's been particularly fun for me is we've become a global company. So when we started, we were all, I, I joke, in the 17th floor of San Francisco. I don't think we were all there, to be fair. There were a few folks in New York. We had, I think, three or four there uh, and a few folks scattered remotely. But the vast majority of the workplace was in San Francisco. And then, you know, immediately after joining, we launched our Paris office, our London office, our Australian office. Well, today we're in every continent but Africa. So, you know, we're operating in Poland. We're operating in Romania. Uh, we're operating in Argentina. We just launched Mexico and Canada. Um, I think they always give us, um, our colleagues, our, our customers always give us a hard, hard time of like why those two were very recent since they're so close. <laughs> yeah. uh, why, why do Japan before before those? But we're excited to be in those markets and in the APAC market. I think that's been a journey for us too. As we've grown as a company, we've become a global company. We have employees in, in most of those markets uh, in all of those continents. And, and so you've learned uh, you know, how do you expand your culture and how do you um, also regionalize your culture uh, and get used to your product being a global offering available everywhere, 
but also with the regional and regulatory nuances that each new market presents. So that is certainly a challenge we've faced as well. We've done a couple of acquisitions that have taken us to Canada and then to the UK and sort of we're expanding around the globe. I think we have people in 12 or 13 countries now, and it is very interesting to do that. How have you personally managed that? I know your team spans across the globe. What are the challenges you've seen, particularly in a remote world there, and how are you bridging some of those gaps? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think United um, really loves me, so they're, they're a big fan. Um, so I <laughs> lots of frequent flyer miles racked up uh, over the years. So I think part of it is you know spending time with those teams, getting to, to meet the clients. One of the things uh, is every market we built, I've made sure I've met publishers and marketers in that market. I think it's important that you hear from the clients on the ground. Um, I think it's important that then you bring that info back. You can feed that into the product team. Um, one of the things we also really focused on is we are one global product with all of these regions. So we've kept the product standard. So, you know, my focus is on addressability. Our addressability products work the same in Canada as they work in Argentina, as they work in the UK. And then you make them nimble where they can adapt to the regulatory needs. So in the UK, we check for the TCF string before we run any of our code on page. In Canada, there is no TCF string, but we have you know different privacy reviews that we do there than we would do in the U.S. and you know complying with CCPA. So I think there's the part of building a, a global team and keeping the culture, bringing folks together as often. I think we do a lot of regional get-togethers where we'll have all of our European folks come together. COVID, of course, disrupted that. We just did one in Europe two weeks ago. It was amazing. It was the first one post-COVID where we got the whole team together. They loved it. They were like, "This is it's great." Uh, and we're looking to do more of those. But I think then also a lot of Zooms. Um, and, you know, sometimes those aren't fun. We have our, our weekly leadership call. Uh, unfortunately, the folks in Singapore and Sydney usually lose out on that one. It's, it's some early time yeah. in the morning. The Europeans, it's late at night. For them, it's early in the morning. And for us in California, somehow it worked out to be 2 p.m. I don't know how the scheduling worked that way. So, But it was it was great. And I think it's it's bringing those folks together and just uh, really keeping the communication because that's how you make sure, even as a global company, you're one team. Nice. So, so we got coffee in APAC, we got cocktails in Europe, and, and you guys are having a sparkling water in uh, San Francisco. Is that what's going on? Exactly. exactly. There we go. Well, obviously, um, a lot of what I think has fueled the, the growth of your company has been some of the international changes as it relates to kind of privacy and consent. How should pubs be thinking about kind of global consent and privacy and how do the solutions you have feed into that? And how do we kind of look forward to what happens maybe even in the U.S. on that front? So I think we fundamentally believe that at the core of everything we do should be consumer trust. I think, you know, our, our view is a lot of the changes we've seen over the past year. And, and to your point, there's been a ton, right? We have the whole acronyms of CCPA, GDPR, Australian one um, that's coming up. Then you've got in um, the U.S., you've got Apple's ATT, you've got IP, I, yeah, ITP, sorry, um, and then you've got ETP as well. So the browser changes. And so you've seen these regulatory changes. You've seen also these browser changes that have happened here. And I think what you're seeing is now both of those are aimed at restoring the trust in the consumer, right? So regulators said, hey, advertisers and publishers, you're using consumer data and all these companies, this advertising and MarTech in the middle, you're not explaining to the consumer what it is. What do these 300 cookies that consumer have? What, what, what do they do for the consumer? So I think you know that was the spirit of GDPR. Now, do I think in reality having a CMP that pops up and gives you the option to opt out of 300 different and set your special purposes for your 300 different cookies helps the average user? I don't know. 
I think the average user probably does not know the difference between a Xander and a Trade Desk and a Live Ramp in that CMP. Uh, and they just click accept all or they click the new reject all button that just came out recently. Um, and I think the same on the browser side. I think, you know, the browsers had probably a good intent, right? They said, hey, we want to respect privacy. For the longest time, my apartment in San Francisco had a billboard right outside of it from Apple saying, you know, Safari protects your privacy. And I was like, this is kind of ironic that it's, it's right here. Uh, and I think Safari and Firefox sure I wanted to do that and certainly Microsoft as well. Um, did they go about it in the best way? Probably not. I think, you know, but then to your question of, okay, so we've had all these changes. What do publishers do about it? And I think, you know, what our encouragement is, well, it starts at trust. If we can restore consumer trust, we can leapfrog ahead of these changes, right? Because otherwise, we're always just going to be chasing the regulations, chasing the next browser move. And so we've got to build a new ecosystem that puts the consumer first and enables um, the consumer to have trusted relationships with their publishers and authors and understand what those relationships are. So I think, you know, to your point of global consent, one of the things we are working closely with publishers on, and you'll see this in our announcement just uh, about a month and a half ago with Trade Desk around uh, the European unified ideas, how can we make it easier for consumers to actually understand what's going on? How do we give them clear language on this? So this is something we've talked with a lot of pubs on. It's like, can you make your privacy policy simpler? Can you make the language around how you use the data easier to understand. Um, and, you know, I think we're seeing publishers come up with some pretty clever ideas. We've talked to, a, to one pub who's actually going to put a, a video up there explaining, hey, you share your data and in exchange, you get all this free content. And then, you know, from the technical side, we've worked on rolling out a suite of solutions around addressability for this that put pubs in control. I think one of the exciting things for pubs and all of this change is they get back in control of their identity addressability. For a while, you saw all this power move over to marketer side and the DSPs. I think there's a, a swing of that power back to the publishers now. Uh, and the publishers are able to um, connect and control their identity, right? Because they have the logins, they have the authentications. And so do they only want to do direct deals? Great, we power that. Do they only want to do private marketplace? Okay, we can do that as well. Do they want to do open exchange? Okay. We can do that. And it's probably for each pub some combination of those levels, right? And like changing those over time. So, you know, I think it's it's a suite of those solutions, but then leaning into that core idea of consumer trust and, and getting publishers to embrace that. Uh, and marketers too. I think the trust is on both sides. Um, I think marketers have just as much a trust issue as publishers do. And as they look at their CRMs, they should be focused on how do they clearly explain the value exchange they're offering as well. So a lot to unpack in what you said. I do think a lot of the consent things have just become a prettiest button contest of who can get the accept all button in the right place so people just click it. Um, you know, part of me completely agrees with you that we really need to ex explain the value exchange of advertising and certain amount of data for content. I mean, you wouldn't expect the newspaper to just show up for free at your house. And yet everybody thinks the internet should be free with no ads and everything. And so there is that element. I do have, I don't know if it's the cynic in me of no matter how well we explain things to people, half the people or the vast majority will say, I don't care and just click the button and move on. And there'll be some portion of people that just says, I want all the privacy in the world. So I, I don't know, no matter how many videos and things we do to explain to people if they will care, or even if the regulators, frankly, understand the entire thing, but We've got to get to some sort of change here. I mean, I guess what's your take on really when cookies are going to go away and what pubs need to be thinking about there on that front? Obviously, Google has said it's going to be next year at some point in time. I'm hesitant to believe it happens exactly the beginning of 2023, but what's the, the internal thinking at LiveRamp? 
Yeah, I think we, you know, are also probably not convinced it will definitively happen next year. I think, you know, they've talked about, hey, third quarter, you look at, we, uh, I would say every morning I do refresh that privacy sandbox uh, website <laughs> because that's how Google uh, sends out their announcements. Um, so make I make sure I don't miss anything there. Um, I think it happens sometime in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. I do, I think 2023 is likely probably closer to the end of 2023. Um, than the beginning of that. Um, but I do think it is on the horizon. My advice when, when I talk to Fausto is, does it really matter? You have to plan for the earliest day it could happen, right? So like, you know, if, if someone said, hey, a major change is, could happen on this day, you have to plan for that. So you're planning for the earliest day it could happen according to Privacy Sandbox. And then the question to me is, why not go ahead and remove that dependency? So I remember, um, you know, almost three years ago now, in May of 2019, when the first Chrome announcement came out, uh, and you know, it didn't even talk about removing the cookies, but everyone thought it might, and then they ended up announcing that six months later. One of the um, moments we had as a company is we said, okay, we've been preparing for six months for them to announce cookies were going away. Um, now that it didn't get announced, let's go ahead and remove that dependency. So we didn't stop ATS, uh, we doubled down on it, and we accelerated it. I think publishers should do the same and marketers as well, for that matter. Now is the time to transition. And then you use the cookie as long as it lasts. It's like a great, it's, you know, it's the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae. Like keep it as long as you can, but go ahead and remove that dependency so that that way when the cookie does go away, it's not a catastrophic event for your business. You had talked about, you know, publishers getting a little more control here and specifically the pubs that really do have good first party data and authenticated traffic. How do pubs scale their authenticated traffic? What are some uh, suggestions, I guess, you would have for folks to build up the value of their audience in terms of the data they are able to harness and put them back in the driver's seat? Because it has been a very marketer-driven world for quite some time. Uh, absolutely. I think first we have to have pubs expand their um, thinking of what authenticated means. So I think a lot of folks like authenticated means I go and I log into your site you know, once a week, once a day. Well, thank you. That, that is certainly authentication at, at its core, but it's so much more than that. It can be an email newsletter. Some of the, the big success we've seen with publishers is they start an email newsletter. And then what you do is you put three sentences of the article in, and then the user clicks through, and the user passes their email address to the site and authenticates. Um, we talked with a, a weather publisher recently about doing text message alerting, because if I want to know the weather, it's pretty commoditized news. Like I can Google it. It's going to appear right there on my search page and I've got a pretty good understanding of it. Uh, or I just jump to the weather app in, in my iPhone or you know my other uh, device of choice. But what happens if you text alert me? I live in San Francisco. The weather changes here like three times a day. It's cold in the morning. It then gets really hot and then it suddenly rains in the evening with you know, gusty wind. It's helpful to know, like, should I be wearing that, you know, classic SF outfit of, of the vest and your shirt um, that all of us tech folks get made fun of for wearing? Or should I, you know, do I need to bring out a jacket and some heavy gear for the, and an umbrella for this for tonight? And so I think probably should be thinking about how do I diversify all those interactions with the consumer? There's also each of those makes me more loyal to that publisher. If I'm reading your newsletter every day. I'm going to spend more time on your site. So an interesting metric we saw is we were talking to a publisher. They have about 32% of their traffic, oh, sorry, of their users authenticate. But that 32% represents 54% of their traffic on their site. Those users are spending almost double the amount of time as a non-logged-in user. So I think we often talk about, you know, 100% of folks won't authenticate. 
that's probably true. Yeah. Like there's going to be a few lucky websites like Financial Times over in the UK who are going to get 100% logins and still charge you know a lot sure. of money each month to pay for the content. But most folks aren't going to be like that. Um, but if they can get 20, 25, 30%, and it ends up representing 50% of your traffic, you've now got 50% of your CPMs selling for a premium. Because the other thing we don't talk about is, you know, today authenticated CPMs sell for roughly the same as cookie CPMs. So you have an opportunity on Firefox, Safari, and Edge to massively increase those CPMs. But in the future, as the authenticated inventory declines, those prices are going to raise. And so publishers will have an even bigger gap between authenticated and unauthenticated inventory prices. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you're making a very good point here. I think the authenticated identity is a piece of the toolbox. How do you think it fits into the overall toolbox that publishers should be using as it relates to selling the audiences most efficiently? Are there other, other ideas that you have there? Yeah, so I think it's, you know, it's not a silver bullet by any means. I think one of the things Bob should look at is how do you take your authenticated audiences and pair it with contextual to extend it out. So, hey, this authenticated audience happens to also overlay with all these contextual elements. Okay, let me extend that out. How does it look with your first party data? So maybe, you know, we have an authenticated audience that a bank sends over and they're like, these are travel credit card reward members. Well, that's probably going to have a high overlap with your first party data and your DMP across travel site, you know, your travel pages on your site. Could you then expand it and say, here's all of your lookalike customers as well? Uh, and then I think it will be interesting to see how the authenticated data can pair uh, with the topics. You know, one of the things we were thinking um, when Flocks was a thing was, could you look at how much of a flock authenticates and make some inferences as to what that flock is? Now, I think topics much higher level, you know, just 300 so topics um, out there, but still opportunities to merge those. So for pubs, it's how do you package up and prepare all of these different solutions to sell to a marketer? So a marketer is always going to say, my data is the most valuable. It's my CRM. I know the most. Plus, I, I trust it. It's mine. And so they're going to pay the highest CPMs. And that's why we think authenticated is the gold standard. But then marketers still need to prospect and look alike and increase their reach. And that's where all of these other audience tours and contextual, we think, plays a role. What is your take on sort of the role of first-party data in open market and PMP and direct? Do you feel like as the cookie goes away, maybe that shifts? Obviously, things have been going to open market programmatic for quite some time because we've been able to rely on the cookie so much. Any thoughts you have? This is not a question that I prepped you with, so I'm hitting you live here. But what are your thoughts on that? No, that's okay. Yeah, I think we, I do suspect a shift. I think publishers who have strong identity are going to be able to have more control. They're going to be able to say, hey, I want to do more direct deals. So I want to do more PG, PMP. Uh, and they're going to be able to lock up some of that identity um, and some of that, sorry, some of that inventory. And then I think open exchange will always play a role because, you know, at the end of the day, marketers don't want to negotiate deals with 10,000 publishers that, that, you know, they don't have the bandwidth to do that. Um, but I think certainly, especially like the comms call 100, direct deals and PG are going to play much more of an important role over the next couple of years. Uh, and it's probably a good power uh, rebalance of where you see um, that power pendulum swing back towards the publisher side a bit. Uh, and it enables more collaboration between marketers and publishers. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the cookie's done, I mean, not the greatest tool for the job, but has done a decent job for a lot of the things that it's needed to do, but it has also allowed some probably lower value audience on acquired traffic sites, for instance, to benefit from the retargeting. And I, hopefully that will shift some of the power back to the really quality publishers. You know, and that's what we believe at Freestar is kind of powering the open web from really high quality 
content producers. And so I hope that is obviously now come here. Um, shifting gears a little bit, you're also on the board of the IAB Tech Lab, in addition to obviously a very important role at LiveRamp. What are you sort of working on in the Tech Lab and sort of what's the interaction between LiveRamp and the IAB Tech Lab at this point? Yeah, so we joined the IAB Tech Lab board either three or four years ago. I think it was probably uh, three, three-ish years ago. Uh, really with the, the goal of how do we help the industry form standards. So I think as we, you know, started the Ad ID Consortium back in 2017 with the idea of like helping move the industry to a common cookie space and putting people-based identity in the bitstream, we wrote most of the people-based identity in the bitstream um, docs to start. You know, it was, hey, RTB exists, where do we put our ID in it? Uh, and I think as we did that, that, you know, it's certainly a fun experience to, to find a place for your ID in the bitstream. Uh, and, and figure the technical mechanics of that out, we realize there needs to be standards around this. Like we're not going to, we, you know, we may be the first ID in the bitstream, but we're not going to be the only ID in the bitstream. Um, and so that really inspired us around standards. And I think, you know, we've, we've always looked to the IB Tech Lab to set the standards for the industry around the new technology from coming out with RTB to then their work on TCF uh, and now their work with REOC and, and setting standards around what should identities look like in the post cookie world. Um, as an industry, sometimes we adopt some nefarious solutions like fingerprinting. And, you know, we, we have some super creative and super smart people in the industry. And I think, you know, from our perspective, though, we've got to put consumer trust first. And so we need guardrails of, you know, how do we make sure that the solutions the industry uses are trusted, pass regulatory muster. And that's where we look at the IB Tech Lab of writing those standards, engaging with them. So we were super involved in the REOC process. Uh, we've supported the uh, IB Tech Lab as it's worked through the, the UID 2.0 process. You know, we are interoperable with that, actually pow- help power UID 2.0 via ATS and the new uh, European Unified ID. Um, we've given lots of feedback to IB Europe and IB Tech Lab around uh, TCF. And, you know, we have a CMP privacy manager that helps with that as well. And so I think we, we see them as, as really uh, a standard setting org and, and are optimistic over the next couple of years that they'll, uh, really play a massive role in the ecosystem because there's a, a lot of standards to be set as we shift away from cookies and device IDs to these people-based identities, but also to contextual and seller-defined audiences. You know, it's to your point, like, you know, authenticated is one solution of, of several solutions and all of those solutions need standards. So there's a lot of alphabet soup you threw out because that's what we do in <laughs> ad tech. Maybe for those that don't know, can you maybe explain UID 2.0 just a little bit for the audience? And then any anything you can preview for us that's coming out of the tech lab here soon? Can you spill any exclusives with me here? <laughs> no, no exclusives to share, sadly. Uh, I do know they've got a, a great event coming up in, in two weeks. So I'll promote their event instead uh, coming up in two weeks in April in New York. Uh, they've got a, an addressability summit. Um, we'll be there along with some others. Um, but no, I think, so UID 2.0, Unified ID uh, 2.0, uh, Unified ID 1.0 was the trade desk's um, you know, third-party cookie that they enabled any platform to use. So they recognized, uh, as did many of us, that we need to consolidate down to a few cookies instead of 300 plus cookies. And so I think they led a, a really good effort there and got a lot of the industry on UID 1.0. And then UID 2.0 is uh, an email-based token that they've created uh, where they've uh, essentially hash and encrypt an email uh, and that ID becomes available in their bitstream for, for open exchange buying. Uh, and so we made a partnership with the trade desk back in October of 2020 of saying, hey, let's support that via ATS. Like we have our people-based ID, um, you know, that's, that's, of course, open exchange, but also private marketplace and also direct. But many of our publishers would love to turn on UID 2.0 as well. And so with a single deployment of ATS, 
um, you can get both IDs out there. And then we announced just last month um, at the beginning of March at our ramp-up event in San Francisco that we'll be helping uh, the Trade Desk also roll out the European Unified ID, uh, which will be kind of the version of uh, UID 2.0, but for Europe uh, and with some different regulatory requirements uh, specific to that market. Uh, regular listeners have heard me say this a few times. I do think this sort of crisis, if you will, in their quotes of the cookie going away has been good to get the industry to come together and start innovating on things and, and come together, whether it be a pre-bid or the IB Tech Lab. It's brought some people into the same room that I think are what we need to really push things forward and you know appreciate certainly Live ramp leaning in on that, trade desk leaning the way in a lot of ways. And it's been it's been fun to see. I hope I hope you've seen that same thing. And it not that people were not collaborative before, but it's kind of pushed us to have to find a solution together, which I think is just great for the industry overall. Hundred percent agree with you. I think you know pre these kind of crises, as you, as you say, we the industry was really competing over kind of who gets the last slice of the small pie, and it's like most of the pie, but it's being eaten up by Google and Facebook. And it's now it's like, well, how do we make a thriving open internet? Because if we can actually just make the open internet bigger, we all get a bigger slice of that. And I mean, you know, at LiveRun, we've always been kind of uniquely positioned. We're not in the media business. You know, we're we're 100% in the data business. So we've never had a, a media take rate or anything like that. So for us, it's always been like, how do we connect more data to more media impressions so that the media becomes more valuable? And I, I think um, it's fueled a spirit of collaboration that we, we haven't seen before. And, and I'm super excited. It's also just, you know, the one thing that I, I always say I love about AdTech is you have an incredible group of people out there across the different companies. Uh, and it's so much fun to work together with them. And I think like together, we really do have the opportunity to, to make a thriving open internet. Yeah, I was just at, uh, lucky enough to go to the Digiday Vale event a couple of weeks ago. And it was, felt like it was the first time the whole industry was back together and such a good reminder of the incredible people that we do have in this space and how smart they are, how fun they are. We had many a late night and, and some good times. It was good to see the industry all back together. Um, so I'm going to close this out like I do every single episode. And I have to ask you, what is some advice a current version of yourself would give a younger version of yourself? Yeah, I've been, so you previewed this question to me uh, in the prep call. And I've been thinking, it's in, in the back of my mind the whole time. You know, I, I really think it would be take on any challenge that's offered. I, I think as I look, uh, you know, throughout my career, you know, I, I've had some pretty cool opportunities presented to me. And they've been because of a willingness to, if there's been a problem, to tackle that problem, even if it's outside the scope of your role, you know, I started in a very different role in LiveRamp than I'm in today. I've you know bounced around a bit within the company, uh, as as many folks do in growth stage companies. Um, but kind of what drove that that journey was always, you know, we have this problem. Hey, we need someone to, to create this consortium around putting people based data in the bitstream. Hey, we need to you know do a research project on the third party cookie and build a strategy around that. Uh, you know, and and those projects and those, you know really develop your capabilities, uh, one, to lead organizations, um, but two, to become trusted within an organization. And I think that's the, you know, if I were to, to look back and give one piece of advice, I would say do even more of that. And in any way you see something broke, see if you can fix it or coordinate a group to fix it, you know, without stepping on folks' toes, of course. But if something's broke in a company, we should work together to fix it. Uh, and I think, you know, what I would say for anyone, you know, early on in their careers, that's how you immediately kind of uh, rise rise up and, and get identified as, as talent that's willing to go the extra mile. I think that is fantastic advice. I always say that curiosity is one of the best things and the willingness to go attack things and be solution-oriented is going to carry you so far in your career. And I think that's just such good advice. 
Travis, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate the insight and frankly, what you guys are helping do to push the industry forward here. Very grateful for it, man. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Thank you again to our special guest, Travis Klinger, for taking the time today to chat with us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you have a spare moment, please check us out on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, or your listening platform of choice. Please leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. For feedback or suggestions for guests, you can reach us at podcast at freestar.com. Special thanks to Matt Hanline for our music and our marketing team for helping with editing, production, and making sure people know this pod exists. Until next time.